So Dan, it's that time of year again. Odds on an abroad summer holiday for you this year? Yeah, I know. I know. We're nearly there, aren't we? It's looking pretty decent, I think. We're really hoping to get to France in August. Our little one has got a lot of family over there that he, he needs to meet that he hasn't met yet. Of course. But both myself and my wife have just had our second vaccinations. That obviously matters for Europe. So we're keeping our eyes on those those amber green lists and just seeing how that pans out. But fingers crossed, I think it's hopefully reasonably likely. Yeah, nice, nice. We're playing it safe from an isolation perspective this year. So we're just going to Wales and Scotland. So yeah, not safe from the rain, but yeah, hopefully not having to isolate. And I guess there's two lists, isn't there, that's, that's important for you. So it's not just whether... France is on our amber list it's whether we're on theirs exactly yeah the moment the moment both are amber I think exactly but everyone who's thinking about these holidays is the France could be checking these two sets of lists so just playing yeah playing traffic lights for the for this summer but hey hopefully we'll be able to get away and it's like it'll be a good August for people I've got this theory that August is going to be really quiet because I feel so many people have sort of pushed their holiday to there but I often when I get these theories, they turn out to be like completely the opposite. So I guess we'll really busy. who knows. <laughs> so don't trust your nose on that one. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But what it does mean is that it's coming towards the end of our season two. So it's time nearly to do a season two wrap up, Dan. Yeah, exactly. And so should we tell the listeners about our big plans for the wrap episode? Yeah. So following the theme of pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone, <laughs> we're going to be doing the season wrap on Clubhouse, which is a platform I'm not that familiar with. So we'll see how it goes. 22nd of July, 2.30 p.m. Join us if you're able to. If you don't have a, a username, then reach out and, and we can send you an invite. And we'll have some of the guests from our most popular episodes of season two. So it should be a really good chat. Exactly. So it'll be effectively a live audio chat, which will mean it will sound a lot less polished than what you're used to hearing, which goes through post-production. But let's not worry too much about that. But we're joined by, yeah, but probably three or four of the guests from our most popular episodes, reviewing, talking all things investing, markets, hopefully a little bit of fun as well. So um, should be great. Fingers crossed. Please come and support us. We're hoping we'll have a few people there. Download the Clubhouse app. And if you haven't got an account for it, reach out and we can give you an invite. Indeed. And in the meantime, if you've been enjoying the Invest Like a mini series, please look out for a couple more episodes coming before we do our season wrap. Um, and the whole series is, is online on our website or any of your usual podcast uh, platforms. Yeah, it's been great, isn't it, doing that? Haven't we? We had some really good conversations, some really common themes coming across from a lot of those investors around long-termism, but some interesting little nuances as well. So um, I don't know. I've enjoyed the conversations. I think I think most people will get something out of it. Most of them, if you haven't already checked them out, then they stand up pretty well. So do go back and have a listen. Yeah, absolutely. Right. On with this week's episode. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hello, welcome to Investment Uncut with Mary and Dan. This week, we thought we'd get into taking stock of where we are in terms of the recovery in Europe. Uh, and joining us to do that, delighted to welcome Catherine Nice, Chief European Economist for PGM Fixed Income. Catherine, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We're delighted you could join us, Catherine. Just to maybe frame the conversation we have today, could you perhaps expand a bit on both your current role at PGIM, but also previous relevant roles that you've had in your career that will feed into the conversation today? So I am currently Chief European Economist for PGIM Fixed Income. This is a relatively new role at the firm. 
my responsibilities are essentially to consider the macroeconomic outlook in Europe, in particular focusing on what's happening in the policymaking sphere that would cover both monetary and fiscal, and crucially to use that assessment to help inform internal investment-making decisions. Before I joined PGM Fixed Income, I worked for many, many years at the Bank of England, mainly as an economist. It was a fantastic place to work, really exciting opportunity. But of course, my new role now is is very different, very complementary, but it's been a lot of fun so far too. Cool. And Catherine, just before we get into all of that, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? So... I guess one thing that not very many people who know me know is the fact that as a little girl in the early 1970s, I lived in Indonesia. I witnessed extreme poverty, something which probably most kids growing up in the US or Europe haven't seen at a very young and impressionable age. And and I think it really focused, it made an impression on me in terms of the power of economics on people's daily lives. Incredible. And so is that the reason that you went into the line of work that you've gone into, I suppose? It was one of the drivers. Yes, I would say so. And whereabouts in Indonesia? I lived in Jakarta, but we spent many holidays traveling around the country. And do you still go back and have you got an assessment of where it's got to then versus now in terms of development? I did go back about 15 years ago, which itself was a long time since I'd been there before. I went to Bali with my grandmother and you could see very much how things had changed. It had become, you know, it's a big tourism center, but I recall going there as a very young child and there were hardly any tourists at all. Yeah. It's interesting. I spent a little bit of time there in the last, probably the last 10 years. And I guess my impression was always a place that was quite upwardly economically mobile, if you like, as in it was sort of, you could tell it was coming from a, a place that had been, you know, poor in the past, but was kind of moving forward. Interesting time, maybe. Definitely. Beautiful country. Well, when we're all back to being able to travel, hopefully we'll all, we'll all be able to make a trip there. Yeah. I guess pivoting slightly from Indonesia to Europe then, which is, I suppose, your core core day-to-day beat, if you like, in terms of your role. Why don't we just take a step back? Why don't you give us your take on what is the current state of play in terms of the European recovery? Where are we? What are you looking at? What are you looking for, sort of thing? So I would start by just setting the framework and reminding ourselves what happened in 2020. So looking back... I think a key point that we should remind ourselves of is that the impact was less bad than feared in real time. I recall Christine Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, saying that she was concerned that economic activity could fall as much as 12% in 2020. And in the end, the economic impact was about half that. So that is important to remind ourselves But of course, you know, if you add together the global financial shock, the sovereign debt crisis shock in Europe, and you put those together, the COVID shock's been bigger. So the punchline is less bad than feared, but still really uniquely a large shock for Europe. The other thing I would point out is that not just in Europe, but globally, this downturn in 2020 was very synchronized 
pretty much every part of the the globe was touched in a very similar way at a similar time. Whereas in the recovery that we're seeing now, there's a lot more diversification. China rebounded very quickly. Now the US is surging ahead, whereas Europe sort of moved sideways really around the turn of the year. So after a period of things looking very synchronized, we're seeing much more divergence in terms of the recovery. When you, I guess, look at the reasons for that divergence, what sort of elements would you point to? Is it a vaccine play? Is that the sort of key driver here or is there more going on under the surface? Vaccination access is clearly an important element here. Europe had a delayed vaccination campaign. And so we're seeing that really strong rebound that was experienced earlier in the U.S., only now in the data. But I would also say that the differences are related to policy support. So again, in 2020, what we saw is policymakers, particularly in developed economies, operating from essentially the same playbook. They all went in very aggressively, very early, very robustly with monetary policy support, with fiscal support. But what you're seeing now as we're moving away from this acute phase from the crisis is there's a lot more differentiation in terms of that policy support. In the U.S., they're talking about tapering. In Europe, they're thinking about possibly dialing up these open-ended asset purchases on fiscal. The U.S., again, is going very big with infrastructure packages and, and the like, whereas in Europe, The Germans seem to be bending over backwards, talking about austerity and balancing the books and all of that. So that's another area I would point to where there's differences and that have important implications for the macro outlook. How would you place the EU recovery fund in that whole picture? Because I've heard some people sort of paint quite a a bullish story around that, that that being something that's quite important for the future of Europe. How How are you seeing that? It is hugely important, but it needs to be seen in the context that it was decided. So it is temporary. It is very much targeted to this pandemic. And so I don't think that we can take for granted that this is necessarily going to translate into a long-term game-changing situation for Europe. But it sets a very important precedent. It's a very important step forward because firstly, it means that if a country or some countries within the European Union get hit by an idiosyncratic shock, it can rely on its fellow union member state countries for support. And it also puts onto the table the possibility that If we can point to some successes from this next generation EU fund and really build a constituency within Europe of a central fund that different member states can access, that in turn, I think, could very much lead to a more long-lasting permanent solution to one of these fairly significant fault lines within the European Union. But there is huge pressure on policymakers to make this thing work, because quite rightly, if it doesn't, it will be very difficult to persuade people to make this a permanent feature. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Catherine, you said just earlier that things have been bad, but only half as bad as perhaps we expected. Do you think that that is we got away with it or do you think that there's more potentially more to come and actually we haven't really felt the true effect yet of last year's events on the economy? Oh, Mary, this is such a good question. Lots of things coming into my mind. I think it was less bad for a couple of reasons that we should pause for a moment, reflect and celebrate, frankly. I think firstly, good science and good policy had a lot to do with the fact that things were not as bad as we initially feared. It's amazing what scientists were able to do in such a short amount of time. It's amazing that policymakers were able to act so decisively and robustly. And a lot of that is serendipitous in my mind, because, for example, the Fed had just launched a framework review and they had had all of their Fed listens sessions And they've been reporting and discussing some of the findings. And one of the key findings that they had was that these unconventional policies that they had had to deploy after the global financial crisis had been successful. They had had costs, there had been limitations, but they'd been successful. And therefore, they concluded, should we ever need to use them again, we can do so in a more confident way. And this allowed not just the Fed, but other central banks, including the ECB, to do something that they had never done before, announcing such huge amounts of quantitative easing, which really helped to calm markets very quickly. Similarly, on the fiscal side, Europe had just launched a review of its fiscal framework literally within a couple of months before the pandemic hit. There is broad consensus across Europe that the fiscal rules do not work. So that helped. That helped a lot for Europe to step out of the way as soon as the pandemic hit and say, member states, national governments, you decide what you need to do in terms of increasing government spending to support households and businesses in your countries. So good policy, good science, and finally, the fact that we're a lot more adaptable, I think, than we could have imagined. I'm amazed at how we have adapted as a family. I'm sure everyone has their own personal stories to tell. And we really saw that economically. It translated into a macro effect. The second time we had these lockdowns later in 2020 in Europe, which did not translate into these big economic hits like they did in the spring of 2020 because people got used to working from home, adapting, adopting COVID protocols, et cetera, which meant that we sort of got on with it and tried to do it as as safely as we could. Catherine, do you ever find, as an economist working in a fixed income house in particular, do you ever find a bit of conflict with portfolio managers on that point around the success of the of the policies? Because I often feel that there's sort of almost like a, dare I say, it, a slightly sneering tone sometimes. Some people sort of talk about what central banks have done as if it's sort of some crazy manipulative experiment. And I often think it's because that's simply because it breaks people's models of how the world ought to work. But I often find, you know, portfolio managers think a bit like that. Did did you find that at all or no? This is a difficult question. 
A lot of people refer to economics as the dismal science. And in part, it's because you can always find a bunch of economists that will say, you know, Q, quantitative easing, these unconventional policies worked. And then a whole bunch that will say it doesn't. You're seeing it now in the big inflation debate. Very prominent, highly respected economists on two completely different sides of the debate. So where is the truth? On specifically on unconventional monetary policy and is it effective? I have seen the academic papers that try to identify the impact. I am persuaded by them. But for me, I think the biggest argument against those who say it hasn't worked is, well, what was the alternative? I have not heard anyone come up with a credible alternative policy that should have been deployed. And these are huge economic shocks. It's not just numbers on a piece of paper. These are people's jobs. It's homes that they live in. They cannot pay a mortgage. There are personal stories behind these numbers. And it's a huge responsibility as a policymaker Your job is to keep the show on the road when the worst thing happens and it's very easy to criticize. It's not so easy to come up with a credible, viable alternative. And what's even more interesting is, you know, quite a lot of water has passed under the bridge since the global financial crisis. Lots of big minds have been thinking about this issue about what should policy be doing at the zero lower bound? And there's still no really clear consensus around what that should be. So criticizing alone is is not constructive if you're actually the person who's in charge and needs to make a decision in the moment of a crisis. Yeah. Catherine, you mentioned just then the big inflation debate. I wonder if you could share your thoughts on that. Where Where do you stand on inflation? I am in the camp of it's temporary. If you think about the impact of the pandemic on measured inflation, it really is very unique. How do you measure prices if collectors can't actually go to the shops and write down the prices that they find? This is how in the UK they measure CPI. What do you do if in your basket of goods for which you're supposed to collect prices, you have package holidays? And nobody can actually go on a package holiday. What does it mean? So there are big measurement issues associated with the pandemic that are completely unique. Then there are other issues around governments using temporary tax cuts to try to boost demand. These tax cuts pretty much go one for one in and then back out of the CPI measures causing blips around it. And then, of course, we've had these supply chain bottlenecks and big energy price effects, which we know have reasonably straightforward one-off effects on CPI, but they also have what are called second round effects. So energy prices are the the easiest way to describe it. If, If energy prices go up, it goes into the CPI almost immediately through petrol prices, through your heating bills at home. But agriculture, for example, is very energy intensive, but the impact on food prices that end up in the consumption basket, that's going to happen with a lag. 
And it will depend on other factors too. What's happening with demand for food at the time, maybe the weather has a bit of an impact. So it's harder to quantify. So there are unique factors associated with this pandemic that are affecting on CPI that I really don't think tell us very much about underlying inflation. I would not be surprised to see surprises in inflation, both in terms of the level and how long it can stay above, because it's very hard to measure these second round effects. But in terms of the medium term outlook, and I think here it's important to differentiate what's happening in Europe from the US, it is very difficult to see strong signs of of inflation. You have lots of spare capacity in the labor market. You have inflation expectations that are way below target. You have much less pent-up demand because the way governments supported households and firms in Europe was more targeted rather than sort of sending these checks. And finally, the ECB is considered the most independent central bank in the world. Their price stability mandate is written into the EU treaty. And so it's very difficult to see that things are going to get de-anchored. And do those comments apply for the UK as well? Obviously, a bit of independence there on policy. The big difference for the UK, I would say, is on the supply side for labour. And here, it's perhaps more similar to the US, but for a very different reason, and that is associated with Brexit. Over the last, I'd say, more than a decade, one of the really strong points of the UK economy is it has been a job-generating machine. We've had huge in-trend increases in labour market participation at the same time as Literally tens of thousands of people came to the UK to work, and yet unemployment was falling. Since 2016, you've seen a really dramatic drop-off of net migration from Europe to the UK, particularly these accession eight European countries. It went from positive, averaging around 60,000 net per year, to a negative number. Now, the International Passenger Survey, which is the survey in the UK that measures net migration, was paused during the 2020, during the COVID crisis. But you can use other data to try to back out a rough estimate of what's happened to net migration. And some academics have done this at the London Business School, I believe it is. And they found that the numbers, if anything, look to have accelerated during COVID. And so you have this great news story in the UK of a mass vaccination program, a very measured and relatively predictable easing process that's helped the economy to open up again against a backdrop of more limited labor supply with people moving to Europe. And so you're seeing this very tight labor market. We've had some headlines around uh, finding drivers of lorries, hospitality, even in healthcare. And you are starting to see this pick up in wages as well. But this is a unique UK aspect to the inflation outlook that I think does put the Bank of England in a slightly more you know, hawkish space relative, say, to the ECB. 
Catherine, could you maybe spend a few moments talking about differences that you see across Europe? So we're, we're talking as with Europe as one block, and clearly you've got the ECB across the board, but there are some quite clear differences between the different underlying countries, which must must at times be a challenge for you as an economist looking at the whole block. Definitely. And divergence is always a strain for Europe, given the fault lines in the Union. And it's to try to close some of those gaps that the ECB and this next generation EU fund are so important. So where I see some of the differences, clearly in this crisis, it didn't affect member states within the EU. Similarly, clearly economies that were first hit by the health crisis like Italy or those whose economies were very vulnerable to this health crisis, such as Spain, which is a very large tourism sector, they were hit really very, very hard. Whereas some of the northern economies that had more time to prepare for the health crisis and who were better able to adapt their economic activity to COVID protocols, they were insulated to a degree from the shock. We also saw it in the recovery because as, for example, China started to come out of the really acute phase of the COVID crisis, we saw global trade really pick up. And Europe is a very open economic region. Germany is an export powerhouse. It could use very strong manufacturing exports to offset to a degree this you know, very constrained services sector that was more linked to, you know, face-to-face working and that clearly was restricted in COVID. So we have these big differences in the crisis. Going forward, the big things that I would be looking out for is in Germany, can we see voters being convinced of the merits of investing in themselves and reaping the rewards for future generations. In Italy, can they deliver some quick wins on reforms associated with this next generation EU to help build up a constituency within Europe for further integration? And for Portugal and Spain, can they find a way really to leverage off their successful post-sovereign debt crisis recovery. You know, in that period since 2012-13, these economies have really transformed themselves. And can they leverage off that, stay the course and build on those reforms and competitiveness and come out of this crisis even stronger? Mm, that's, that's a fascinating little set of vignettes there. And just, it just goes to the the differences, doesn't it, across these different areas. But it's interesting, it's not often one hears German politics being referred to as like an important economic thing, right? It's normally just sort of part of my opinion, but sort of dead boring and in the background. But that's interesting that you feel that that's an important to the future. It is. It's very important right now. I think Germany is looking for a change. One of the key differences I think you see now is There's always in the past been this sense that fiscal austerity is very important because it protects future generations from having to pay off all this excessive debt. But if this debt is being taken on today to invest, for example, in a green transition that is going to protect our planet so that it's there for future generations, then that 
original narrative for fiscal austerity kind of breaks down. And I think people are beginning to see that in Germany. And what's remarkable in this election is that, yes, we've seen some stuff in the press. Some of them are trying to burnish their credentials for balancing the books. But generally speaking, they are all talking about doing a lot more fiscal spending than what you might have expected even just a year and a half ago. And the second point I would make is this crisis has also, I think, clarified for a lot of Germans that they really have lost the digital race. And we know that Europe is lagging on digital relative to the UK, the US, but out of 27 member states in Europe, Germany ranks 27 in terms of digital readiness, according to European think tank surveys. And during this crisis, there were stories that they were faxing each other data on infection rates between different lender. So there is an appreciation that it is important to invest in German public infrastructure for the benefit of German people. And there is a benefit to expanding your fiscal spending now to invest in a better future. Yeah, maybe just building on your comments about digital there and sort of broadening it into the tech sector. And clearly that's been so dominant in the last, well, certainly 12 months, but the last number of years. Do you think it's harmful for Europe not to have a big dominant tech sector or is that something that they can sort of work around? They are very self-aware is my sense from reading European Commission documents that they have lost the digital race. And this is one factor behind why in this next generation EU, it's targeted not just to the green transition, but also to digitalization. So this is an area where Europe wants to invest. It's not that across the board, everything is, is lagging. In some areas, Europe is leading. For example, the ECB is ahead of the Fed in terms of thinking about launching potentially a digital euro. They've already put out discussion papers, getting views, soliciting views from citizens across Europe. They see themselves as potentially being leaders in blockchain technology. So there are pockets of innovation out there. Similarly with biotech, it was a German immigrant couple at a startup firm that gave us the Pfizer vaccine. And Europe more generally is really very advanced when it comes to biotech. So there are these pockets, they are self-aware, they're willing to put their money where their mouth is in terms of investing in this area in Europe. They have strategic plans around how to get there. So my sense is that we can be cautiously optimistic that they will get there. In terms of data privacy, again, this is an area where Europe leads. Good old GDPR, everyone's favorite uh, set of regulations, <laughs> right? No, there's really something to be said for that, isn't there? So Catherine, look, if we were to slightly unfairly put you on the spot and say, look, next 10 years for Europe, are we looking at the roaring 20s or are we looking at another sort of secular stagnation decade? Where would you sort of land on that? I think huge steps have been made towards further integration in Europe. 
And I'm quietly optimistic that, yes, there's more road to travel, but that Europe can get there. Support for the EU is at an all-time high, according to the latest surveys. I think it's also worth pointing out that Europe has been quietly in the background taking a leaf out of the Americans' book on product market competition and over the last 20 years have made significant steps towards improving competition in Europe. The classic example here is inter-European flights and mobile phone tariffs, which are a lot lower in Europe than they are in the US. I think there was something even in the newspapers today about congressmen and women being concerned in the US that antitrust isn't as strong as it should be. And Europe has very strong antitrust. Europe has continued to sign a lot of trade deals during the Trump administration with Canada, Japan, Vietnam. They very much see themselves as an open economic region. Open economic regions tend to have higher productivity. And there are elements of dynamism in Europe. We talked about the vaccine, there are others that I think should not get lost in the discussion. So I'm cautiously optimistic. But of course, there's always the risk in Europe that we will see a resurgence in political tensions. But my view is that Europe is going to have made significant advances over the next 10 years. Fantastic. So very optimistic. And I suppose you said yourself cautiously optimistic. What about on a slightly shorter term basis? So the next 12 months, what are the sort of things that you're most excited or concerned about? I'm most excited about seeing some of these next generation EU funds being dispersed and hoping to hear about some early and quick wins in terms of reforms. What I'm most worried about is the ECB framework review Can they be as bold and decisive as they were with this pandemic emergency response as they are with the more long-lasting monetary strategy? The Governing Council, they've got a lot of skeletons in their closet. But I guess the biggest concern I have clearly is an escape variant that is going to put us back at square one. And I think we're all going to be nervous going into this winter, no matter what. We will all want to have a lived experience that we can get through a winter, that we can do it safely, that we can do it in a way that kids can go to school. And once we've had that lived experience, I think we're all going to feel a lot more confident and able to move forward. But until then, my sense is that there will always be that nervousness there. And so policymakers need to continue to do good policy, and we need to continue to have good science to help us with these escape variants. Well, we're not out of the woods yet. Fantastic. Yeah, great summary. Thank you. Okay, well, I mean, why don't we start to wrap up now? And as we do that, Catherine, what would you bring out as the one thing you'd like listeners to take away from from all this conversation? It's not all doom and gloom. (laughs) There are elements of dynamism that I think some people may find surprising. Yeah, oh, that's really come out, actually. Yeah, it's really interesting because it can be so easy to lump everything in together and get tied up in this this sort of stagnant narrative. But I'm really, really glad you challenged that a bit. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. And Catherine, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? Diversification. 
I studied this as a student. Why is there home bias in people's investment portfolios? And it's actually a question I put to one of our most senior and experienced portfolio managers. I figured he would be able to answer this question. And he said, a good investor doesn't get captured by their asset class. They need to be hard-nosed and objective. And that is really what makes a great investor and you need to diversify. So that sounded to me like very sound advice. Indeed. And thank you for sharing it on the show. Thanks. Yeah. And recommendations then. What does a chief European economist read and listen to in terms of when you get your your ideas? So my favorite book is a book I read two summers ago, my last proper summer holiday called Actfulness by a guy named Hans Rosling. And in it, he sets out the progress that humanity has made in recent decades. And it's very uplifting. It links back to as a child growing up in Indonesia. And so I, I really do recommend that as a fun economics read. And in terms of podcasts, probably you've had other people say this, but macro musings is just always good. They get very high profile people like my former boss who wrote a book, Mark Carney on values, or people that have done really original pieces of academic research, like this guy Schmelzing, who actually managed to piece together a time series that spans 700 years estimating the real interest rate. Interesting. I'm not sure we have had that one, actually. No, no one's mentioned that. I wasn't aware of that either. So I'm definitely going to check that out straight away. So thank you so much for that. And this year, my summer holiday is going to be in Wales and Scotland. So while it rains outside, I'll certainly make a note to read that book. Thank you. Yeah, Off Happiness is brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I was actually rereading it a little bit earlier this year. And I mean, it's so much in there, like you just take so much away on a second or a third reading. I think it's it's an absolutely brilliant book. Everyone Everyone should read it for sure. Catherine, it's been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Brilliant. We've enjoyed it too. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Do join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.